Every now and then, I meet someone who's changing the world for the better by their sheer will alone. Whether they're authors, activists, or adventurous, these people are blazing a path with their deep enthusiasm and allowing the world to follow. Their passion is strong, and my passion is to tell their stories. I am Brian Platt, and this is Passion Project. Hey everyone. So in this episode of the podcast, I speak with Rick Ridgeway. If you don't know Rick, he's literally one of the most incredible people I have ever spoken with on this podcast. He's what Rolling Stone called the real Indiana Jones. He's the 2008 recipient of National Geographic's Lifetime Achievement and Adventure. He's a lifelong adventurer. He's a filmmaker of over 30 documentaries. He's climbed virtually all the world's highest peaks on all continents, including Everest. He made the third summit of K2, which is the second highest peak in the world, but regarded as the most difficult and the most dangerous. And he was the first to climb that without oxygen, the first American. Um, He was the former uh, Patagonia VP of public engagement. And I also think environmental affairs. And he's the author of six mountaineering classics the most recent of which that I talked to him about was Life Live Wild. We talked about a lot. There is a lot to talk about with him, mainly about his trips, um, like 50 years of exploration, environmentalism, and how that kind of changed from starting about being more about the sports themselves, whether it's mountaineering um, or climbing, to more focused on conservation and how that metamorphosis happen and what spawned that. Um, We spoke about overcoming mental barriers and goal setting. He's very goal-driven. So it was interesting to talk about how that impacted his life, trying to always get to the next summit, trying always to accomplish the next thing, how that impacted his life about being in the moment and how his wife, um, at the time of many of his adventures, Jennifer helped him with that understanding that there's more than just the next summit, there's more than just the next goal to accomplish and really living in the moment and being with yourself at that time. Um, and yeah, we talked mainly about his book, again, Life Live Wild. It's incredible. It's written in such a beautiful way, uh, but also he brings you on these 50 years of adventures that he went on, starting when he was in his early 20s and going up to pretty much present day. Um, It's an incredible book. I would recommend it to anyone who's interested in adventure, conservation, environmental issues. Um, It is really, really, really well written. And he honestly like brings you on a lot of these trips that he did throughout the 50 years of his career. So anyways, I hope you enjoyed this episode with Rick Ridgeway. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Rick. This is a true honor. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure, Brian. Nice to be with you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So like I mentioned, I just finished the book, Life Lived Wild. Um, it's incredible. I will probably gush about it, uh, many times throughout the course of this conversation. Um, there's so many different aspects to talk about through it, uh, both with your experiences and, and the lessons you learned. Um, and I'm familiar with your origin source at this point, uh, but I'm very curious and I like to hear when you say it, but how did you get involved 
in um, mountaineering and in the adventurous life that you've lived? Well, like most of us, I suppose, uh, that it, it started with a happenstance. Uh, perhaps by, like many of the listeners, uh, I also happen to be a little bit of an obsessive type person. Uh, when I get interested in something, I, I tend to go after it uh, pretty single-mindedly. <clears throat> and the, that passion uh, and obsession is... I think my mother would have called it when it first happened to me with mountaineering and climbing, you know, started when I was still living at home. Uh, I was 14 years old and received in the mailbox uh, one day a article uh, in National Geographic on the first American ascent of Mount Everest. And inside was a photograph of Jim Whitaker, the first American to climb Everest on the summit of the highest mountain in the world, holding his ice axe uh, over his head with uh, the flags of the United States and the National Geographic Society tied to it, whipped in hurricane winds, and he had his oxygen mask on and his heavy parka. And I just looked at him and it resonated. <clears throat> I don't know why, but I saw that photograph and I said, I, I want to do that. I want to I be that guy. And fast forward a few years, um, I had stayed after that passion. I had met a few climbers who had taken me under their wing. I had spent a few seasons in the Peruvian Andes. I had learned um, the basics of snow and ice climbing. That led to an invitation to what in the mid-1970s was only the second uh, American expedition ever to go to Everest. My first trip to the Himalayas. Um, I remember when I got the invitation, I thought to myself, well, might as well start at the top and work down. <laughs> And although I missed the summit, I got high on the mountain. I did a lot of the lead climbing. Uh, I learned even more about high altitude mountaineering. And that in turn led to an invitation to join uh, what became the first American ascent of K2, the second highest mountain in the world, now commonly regarded as the most difficult of the world's high peaks to climb. <clears throat> and that expedition was led by no other than Jim Whitaker, my boyhood hero. And that was only a little over 10 years after I'd seen that article in National Geographic. So, um, you know, I, you said you were going to talk about the lessons to pull from some of my experiences. And, you know, I don't know if there's there's probably one in that. And it has something to do with obsession and it has something to do with uh, a singular focus on uh, something that you're really passionate about. And, and, uh, and it also has something to do with, you know, dream, dreams really can come true. What in your youth, you might think of as a unreachable, unattainable, you know, goal, you, you could turn it into reality. Um, that's one of the big things I took from that experience uh, from the high elevations and, and brought home to my life at sea level. Yeah. And I've heard you talk about taking advantage of opportunities as they <clears throat> arise and that opportunity to go with Jim Winokur, uh when you were like 25, like how... Yeah. That must have been incredible. That must have been, I mean, how many people was he reaching out to? How many people went with him on that trip? And, and you know, what was your reaction when you heard that news? Well, you know, I might back up just a, a one notch and, and talk about opportunity for a second, because uh, you, you could uh, easily assume that uh, it was luck, <clears throat> you know, luck that I got invited on 
this expedition led by my boyhood hero who had started me on on the inspired me on the path I'd followed. But um, you know, I think if we all examine luck a little more closely, uh, we'll learn that it's much more about opportunity, and that in turn, opportunity is a lot more about the things that cross our paths, all of us, everybody listening to this, <clears throat> you know, you have things that happen every day to you that are potentially opportunities if you really know how to recognize them. So that's what opportunity is to me. And it's, of course, it's a mix of, of luck. There's a little bit of that in there, but there's a lot more in just being able to, you know, recognize uh, something that could take you down a different path when it crosses your own path. So I've had a lot of, been fortunate to have a lot of those, but then I've also had the focus to learn how to identify them in the first place. So now back to your question about the K2 trip. And there were over a dozen of us, I think 14 on the expedition altogether. Unlike the Everest trip, which had been two years before, there were no Sherpas to help us uh, on this to uh, carry the loads in uh, up the to carry the loads up the mountain, uh, and I might back up and say on that Everest trip back in the nineteen seven in mid seventies, uh, even though we had Sherpas to help us carry loads, we put the route in ourselves and we fixed all the ropes, uh, and the and and climbing Everest back then was a whole lot different than it is now. You know, it was it was really a an endeavor that required of all of us. Uh, every skill we had to offer to the challenge. Uh, and those were skills that had to be earned over a long period of apprenticeship. Yeah, I bet there was no one paying their way to the top. Like you kind of mentioned, there no. are some people who can pay their way to the top now, but I yeah. mean, in the second and, expedition, I bet there wasn't anyone. No, and as a, another one of my climbing partners, Yvonne Shrinar, the founder of Patagonia, uh, reminds friends and uh, young people too that he mentors you know, he says, you know, what the trouble with buying your way to the top is that you're really shortcutting the process. Uh, you're shortcutting the apprenticeship. And if you really think about it, you're shortcutting yourself. <clears throat> so <laughs> another topic we could get into, but back to the K2 climb. <clears throat> uh, again, no Sherpas to help us. Uh, we had to carry everything from the base of the mountain uh, up ourselves. We did have help from four uh, porters who were from the Hunza district who had a little bit of mountaineering experience and they helped us ferry loads up the lower part of the mountain. But, but we were up there on our own and um, we were the only expedition on the mountain uh, and <clears throat> took a long time. From the time we arrived at the base of the peak uh, after walking 110 miles, mostly off trail, uh, it took us another 68 days uh, of effort to get to the top. Uh, and that took a lot of not just endurance, but, but tenacity. Uh, you really had to dig deep to find the wherewithal to keep after it. Uh, after and, and, and the main reason it took so long was because we had a lot of bad weather, which is not uncommon on high peaks anywhere, uh, but especially on, uh, some, on the, in the northwestern end of the Himalayas, um, we were... Uh, forced off the mountain six times by storms that usually lasted uh, sometimes a week, sometimes even a week and a half. <clears throat> and we just had to wait the weather out and then start back up again, <laughs> pulling our ropes and digging out our tents from the camps we had established to then 
push up further to establish the next camp. <clears throat> and finally, we got uh, five, six camps in up, up the mountain, the highest one at 26,000 feet, uh, still a long ways below the summit. But then at the very 11th hour, and, and, and it's not an exaggeration to call it the 11th hour because we're really just about out of food and fuel <clears throat> uh, in the upper camps. Uh, we got a break in the weather and we made a, a, a really last minute uh, push at the summit and, and four of us reached the top. And it was also the first ascent of K2 without using oxygen. And everybody climbs it without oxygen. Well, I shouldn't say everybody, but most people climb it without oxygen now. Um, but back then, uh, the mountain had only been climbed twice uh, ever by any route. And we had put up a new route. Uh, and then at the very end, we decided to see if we could finish it off without using oxygen. And at that time, uh, the only people who had been up high for any length of time uh, were uh, Reinhold Messner and, and his partner, Peter Hobbler, who uh, just a few months before had made the first ascent of Everest without oxygen. And, and we had been told that they had short-term memory problems and it looked like they had per potentially permanent brain damage from the hypoxia. And so that was a big, like you didn't know what wow. was going to happen to you. You didn't know if you might be damaging yourself for the rest of your life. But at the same time, it was this challenge to push yourself just as far as you thought you might be able to go. Um, and another thing was that, you know, back then we truly didn't know that uh, or appreciate, I suppose, that K2 is really as hard as it was. I mean, standing at the base, looking at that mountain, there's nothing else that looks like it on planet Earth, that's for sure. But uh, it's now, as I said, commonly regarded as the highest mountain in the world, or the hardest mountain of the high mountains in the world to climb it. And it's just a good thing we didn't know that as well as everybody does now back then. It might have created one more mental barrier that wasn't there. Uh, but... But we pulled it off, um, and that was uh, easily the, you know, for me and my mountaineering career, that was the hardest one. I, I really had to dig the deepest to find the strength to keep putting one foot in front of the other, uh, up right just below the summit, especially uh, when we were above the 28,000-foot level. And, and what you mentioned in your book was, you know, you... Um that initial ascent of Everest, you weren't, you did not make it to the top. You got very close, but you didn't make it to the top. But there was, um, there was a little bit of fear, right? As you were climbing K2. Yeah. And so that's another thing you had to overcome. And it seems like there's been time and time again in your career that you've been able to overcome some sort of mental block, whether it's fear or whether it's something that you were able to get to push past um, what kind of tactics yeah, I, did you use for that? Well, I I missed Everest because on the summit day, uh, or the day before the the summit day, I uh, my lungs congested, and I, at first I thought it might be cerebral or pulmonary edema, which is a potentially fatal, um, you know, uh, f uh, gathering of uh, uh, fluid in, in your lungs. <clears throat> But it turned out to be pleurisy. When I got down, I got a diagnosis that I had a little bit of a pneumonia-like condition. Mm -hmm. uh, but up at, uh, up high, you know, something that you could t take care of with a few antibiotic pills, uh, up high, it just flattens you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I had no choice but to turn around and go back. But then I didn't know if going back to high altitude, I might just have some uh, limit to uh, the ability, my own physical ability to... Uh, 
to climb at that altitude. I, I didn't know. And I didn't know if maybe I was susceptible to pulmonary edema. And if I did try to go back high again, would uh, I potentially, you know, have something fate, fatal happen to me? That was, that was there all the time, not back of mine, front of mine. Mm. Uh, but then as I really got acclimatized on K2, um, you know, I still had the, the strength to uh, keep going and to, and to make that final push w- without oxygen. Um, and, but I wasn't, you know, my summit partner, John Roskelly was just physically stronger than me. So, um, I've never been a naturally endowed athlete. Uh, I've always been one that had to maybe struggle a little bit harder <clears throat> and push and find the middle discipline to, to, to try harder, uh, than people that were perhaps more, more physically endowed than, than I was, uh, mm-hmm. with, uh, an athlete's at physical attributes. I just didn't, you know, I'm kind of average in that regard, <clears throat> but I, you know, I did it. And, uh, and looking back at it now, um, I can see how we, how far out on a limb re- we really were, uh, especially compared to the, uh, climbers that ascend K2 and Everest now where the whole mountain is strung with fixed ropes. And <laughs> when I see footage of, uh, climbers today, uh, going up K2, uh, and I look back and remember what it was like for us, I, I, can, I, I appreciate a little more, I think, what we actually did because you know, John and I on that last day, <clears throat> um, we were out on limb so far that um, we uh, a bit had, had, had abandoned our, our, our climbing anchors because they weighed too much. And without anchors, John had pointed out that we couldn't belay each other. And without belaying each other, it made no sense to rope together because we had no anchors to put in. So if one person fell, (laughs) the other guy would get pulled off, and and that was irrational. So John had said, well, let's just leave our ropes because they weigh a lot. So we climbed the last section unroped, uh, and and it's called the bottleneck, and it's a a narrows uh, under a serac that then uh, you exit this narrow couloir that's pretty steep. And then you got to climb over really st- pretty steep rock that has ice over it here and there. And, and it's steep. Um, and we had to climb that whole section unroped and down climb it without oxygen. And, you know, that was a really, that was kind of, I mean, we were out there, put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Well, and even just the equipment alone, like the equipment alone in the, you know, 30, 40 years since you or, you know, 50 or even plus since you started climbing, that's, that's have to have come leaps and bounds. Yeah. We had leather boots, uh, for example. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They weren't the plastic, super insulated things that, that are, that are light. They were leather and they were heavy. heavy. So bet, ev- yeah. every, every step took more energy to haul that boot up, and <laughs> stick it in the ice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's no comparison. Um, so when you have to, for whatever reason, when, when you can't reach the summit, uh, w- whether it's because something's going on physically with you or something with a teammate or something, what is going through your mind? First of all, how do you get to that point to determine that? Um, you know, it seems obvious when it's, it is a health risk, um, but like when it's something else, how do you get to that point to determine that? And what goes through your mind as you are making that decision? Because there's a lot, as you mentioned, there's a lot invested in this. There's a lot of time for planning. There's a lot of time just to get there. There's 
there's money. There's a lot of, there's a lot that's on the line. So I'm always curious yeah. about what's going through your head at that point. You know, in my book, I, I, in the preface, I remember saying that, that it's not about taking risks, but it's about managing risks. And that is a lesson that um, I've applied to my life as a business person too. Um, I think uh, any business person who takes too much risk that isn't carefully managed will go out of business. And a climber who takes too much risk without managing it uh, won't live very long. Uh, one goes bankrupt and one dies. Uh, so the stakes in mountaineering are a little, a little higher, but the, the lessons, many of them, uh, and principles by which you have to comport yourself are similar. <laughs> but but the, on that topic of managing risk, just saying it sounds kind of cool, you know, oh, it's not about taking risks, it's about managing risks. Well, what's that really mean? Uh, I told you a little at the beginning that I had a, an apprenticeship in Peru where some much more experienced climbers had taken me under their wing. I spent three seasons there climbing with these guys. And um, in the third year, I led my own expedition. Uh, and the guys who had been my mentors were my teammates. And I was kind of their leader. <laughs> I had flipped it just by hard, hard commitment and work. <laughs> and we were attempting a route called the East Ridge of Wonsan. It had never been climbed before. It was this fabulous 5,000 vertical feet high, really steep ridge crest on one of the coolest peaks in the Peruvian Andes. <clears throat> and there were six of us and we were gonna climb it alpine style, which meant we, we didn't set up camps. We just started at the base and went up carrying everything we needed. Six days later, uh, with just a little bit of food and fuel left, because again, we'd start off with really heavy packs. Only one other guy was left kind of standing and me, and we were bivouacked under the summit head wall. And in the morning we started up and we got into a section of water ice, just hard ice, the same kind of ice you get out of your freezer to make your drinks out of. Mm. <laughs> and this was back in the very early 70s, and it was before Yvonne had really brought modern ice climbing techniques uh, to the U.S. Uh, he'd kind of learned how to climb on hard ice in Europe, but, but climbers didn't know how to do that very well. And, uh, and, the, and the equipment was kind of primitive. And by the time we got to this water ice section, we didn't have any equipment left. We had no ice screws. Uh, and no pickets, like I had, everything was gone. So I had to make a decision. Um, first of all, if I was gonna climb this section, I had to do it unroped uh, for the same reason John insisted that we throw, leave the ropes behind on K2 that I just told you about. Yeah. With no anchors, it made no sense to rope up. The guy that I was with was less experienced than me. And I, I didn't have that much experience climbing ice. so. I had to assess the risk uh, and I had to assess the risk, not just for myself, but for him, because I was the leader. And if I left him there alone, just was that fair to him? Uh, and if he tried to go down on his own without me to help him, was that fair? And then what about my own safety? You know, my own chance of a slip and a fatal fall. But right in front of me, I had one little section of ice to get 
to the top of what it would be and still is today would have been one of the coolest climbs ever in the, in, in the Peruvian Andes. And I turned back. <laughs> and uh, so I've thought about that a lot. Uh, and I feel good. At, I feel good about it. It would have been arguably just as cool of an achievement as, as that one we did on K2. Uh, the route's only been climbed once ever. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. And it's, it's just a gem of a route. It's a fantastic route. But I managed the risk, you see. Uh, and I didn't. And, and that's so that's a, a kind of a bit of a long story uh, that explains what that comment of mine means. Uh, and it's a big lesson. It's one of the things that uh, I brought down from the mountains. And uh, again, as I said before, um, applied to my business life as well. Uh, it, it's it's those, those kinds of things, too, that my other close climbing partners, Doug Tompkins and Yvonne Chouinard, who are both you know major characters in my book, because mm-hmm. <laughs> they're major characters in my life. They're two of my main mentors. Um, Doug started the North Face and Yvonne started Patagonia and they were climbing partners for 60 years. Uh, so, and they did incredible ascents all over the world and started the two most iconic brands in outdoor sports. Uh, but those, but they, they learned these things too. I learned it from them. We learned it directly ourselves and we took these things home and, um, they're some of the underlying and foundational principles of, uh, the way uh, Patagonia, the way Yvonne set up Patagonia, the way it's run. I had my own business for a while. It informed that. It informed the businesses that Doug had uh, in his life. And it really informed uh, what we did, not just with our business lives, but with our um, lives as conservationists and environmentalists. Uh, it is all that time in the wild parts of the world, uh, in wild nature in wildness, uh, you know, where we're kind of out on a limb, where you got to really learn to survive on your own resource, using your own resources. We, we brought all those things back and, and it really did um, influence uh, the way the companies were, were run. Uh, and also it really influenced what they stood for, it still does. Mm. Um, you know, Patagonia is in business to use business as a as a tool for environmental protection and, and wildland conservation uh, to find solutions to the twin existential crises of our time, the climate crises and the extinction crises. That's why Patagonia exists. And, and, and it, 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 it makes those commitments because of when you really, when you really trace it upstream, it's because of all the time that the founders spent in wilderness, in nature, in wildness. And, uh, and that's where the change came, the metamorphosis in, in those guys and me and many of the people I talk about in my book. Yeah, it's really incredible because like you mentioned, both Doug and Yvonne um, are huge, huge names in business, but they're both, we'll say it, reluctant entrepreneurs, right? They, they both kind of ended up in this situation but they utilized what they had to both fund conservation initiatives, give an incredibly huge voice to, um, to you know, the environmental crises, and also be a, a really big example for many other people and many other organizations to follow suit. Um, which I think is a kind of a, one of the backbones to the book about how you started out as a mountaineer, as someone who is 
looking for adventure and really interested in the wild sports. But then from there went into the wild places that those sports took you. And then the, um, you know, the, the, the wild animals and the environment uh, in which you would have to go to experience this. Um, can you talk a little bit about that metaphor, uh, metamorphosis within yourself, how you came to that realization of going from a adventurer to a conservationist? I, I can. Uh, and I'll, I'll, maybe I'll start by explaining the genesis of the book itself, because <clears throat> uh, it started uh, coming home from Patagonia, the place, uh, helped with uh, a buddy of mine who... Uh, was my mentee. I got him started in filmmaking, uh, uh, Jimmy Chin, mm-hmm. and another climbing friend of ours, uh, Timmy O'Neill. And Timmy and I had been down in Patagonia, the place, helping Jimmy on a film he's making about Chris and Doug Tompkins <clears throat> and their conservation work in South America. And uh, we were in the Santiago airport, and we had a long layover. It's like seven or eight hours <laughs> before our flight left, and we were in the bar. And I just started telling stories. And um, for example, I told the case two story and I, I told about how on that 110 mile approach march to base camp, uh, we had uh, 450 porters to carry our stuff. And Timmy says, whoa, dude, 450 porters. And Jimmy says, whoa, man, like we only got a few guys. And then I said, well, we, we, we had to have 380 porters to carry our supplies. And then, because we were going to be there for five months, that's how long it took, (laughs) including the the march in. And then we realized we had to have, you know, some more porters, 40 or 50 more to carry the food for the 380, because most of the route was uninhabited, the the trekking route. And then we needed another 15 or 20 porters to carry food for the other porters (laughs) carrying the food for the other porters carrying our gear. So I said, you know, we have with 450 guys and they go, wow, do you have photos? And I said, well, sure. You know, we all took pictures. And, he, and they said, you got to start an Instagram account. <laughs> so by the time uh, we had our third beer and we were on the plane ready to leave, um, I had an Instagram account and I posted a photograph and, and I started getting followers, even though I'm an, you know, an old geezer. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag old school, right? Yeah, hashtag old school. That's what Timmy said. Um, then uh, my daughter, my middle daughter, Cameron, uh, and who was a photo editor at Patagonia and another one of her colleagues there, uh, convinced me to turn my Instagram post into uh, a book by writing stories about my adventures. So I did. And, and it took me a while because there's a lot of them. And, and in fact, by the time I got done, there were 50. I had 50 stories about 50 adventures over you know a 50 year period and it was too almost too big to be a book and a couple of the stories in there were about an adventure i had in my real early youth in my early 20s and it was a misadventure like yvonne says adventures are, are really when things start to go wrong and on this sailing trip i was on things went really wrong and I ended up, you know, getting arrested and I was in prison with a woman I was traveling with and it was ugly. 
Uh, and I tell the story in my book, so I won't go into it too much <laughs> longer here. If you want to know more about that, we, you could read it in the book. But um, I had to send the stories about the jail time uh, to uh, this friend of mine. I had talked to her for years, Candace, because uh, I needed her permission to to print them. And she said, can I read the whole book? And I nervously said, well, okay, thinking to myself, what am I going to do if she doesn't like it? Uh, but then a couple weeks later, she came back and said, well, I do like it. And she said, but tell me, who are you writing it for? And I said, well, I don't know. Um, you know, outdoor people, conservationists, uh, mountaineers, you know, adventure sports people. And then she said, what do you want them to learn from it? <clears throat> and I knew I knew Candace had been a lawyer, and I thought, God, is she is she like a, a trial lawyer? <laughs> I feel like I'm being interrogated. Uh, and I said, I don't know. And she says, Well, you need you need to figure that out. You need to know what you wanted to take from it. And she said, I tell you what, do this. <clears throat> you go back and think about all your fifty stories, and then think about your life, and think about where you started, and think about where you are now. And tell me what the main through line is. Who are you? <laughs> and I was kind of flabbergasted. I mean, I, but I took up the challenge because I, I was intrigued with her probing. It, it, because I, I immediately realized that they were 50 disparate. They weren't disparate. They were, the thread was me. Mm -hmm. But as she said, it was not a memoir. It's just a bunch of stories. So I came back two weeks later and I said, Candace, I, I really took you up on this. I have been hiking in the hills. I've been thinking about it every day. And, and here's what I've realized, that in the beginning, in, the tw in my 20s, uh, following Jim Whitaker's footsteps, literally, it was about the adventures. And it was about uh, the people I was with. And it was about going to these wild places that were literally on the edge of the known parts of the world. And through my life, it shifted over time to becoming about saving the places where I had the adventures. And she said, great. Now take that and apply it to every story you've got and throw everything else out that doesn't have something to do with that. And so I had to take another year and a half to do just that. And it really worked. And it, it ended up really representing me in a way that I hadn't anticipated going into it. And I, th I, th I, I am so grateful for her. You know, I said, how'd you learn to do, be an editor like this? I thought you were a lawyer. And she says, oh, I forgot to tell you for the last 25 or more years, I've had a side business as a author's coach. <laughs> Now, we talked earlier about luck versus opportunity, but I'll tell you what, I'll take, I'll eat my own words a little bit and say that is pure luck. That's incredible. And what I'm always taken aback with is the people that are involved in the story. First, the, uh, the types of people that are quote unquote dirtbacks, right? So the climbers and mountaineers. Uh, you've got Yvonne, you've got Doug Tompkins. There's a couple encounters with Tom Brokaw. 
Um, but then you've got a guy, and I actually forget his name, but he would uh, he chipped his tooth and he filed it um, to to match the other teeth as he was like as you were in front of him. Um, what characteristics characteristics does someone need physically and mentally to be a good climber? And then what do they need to be a great climber? And what is the difference between the two? You've talked a lot about grit, about that tenacity, about determination. I can imagine that being one, but what else would someone else, uh, what's up? <laughs> we used to joke with each other and say the, the only qualification you need to be a good mountaineer is a short memory for pain. Uh, and that's, that's actually part of it, uh, is that you have to uh, overcome the unwillingness to be uncomfortable <laughs> uh, and to endure pain a lot, actually. Uh, you get into a lot of painful situations that are more than just uncomfortable. Uh, what, so that's sorry, certainly one big, thing you have to do. I was going to, what was the, what's the biggest, like, I mean, obviously there's pain with your gear, there's frostbite, but what is the most common pain you have to endure? And do you ever get used to it? Well, I think it's the, it, and it's not pain, but it's just the, the, the discomfort from, um, you know, fatigue from pushing yourself physically to the point where you just want to sit down and rest and you want to stop and you want to go back down. And you just have to dig deep to find that wherewithal to overcome <clears throat> your body telling you it's, it's enough. And you have to have that mental discipline to tell your body what to do instead of your body telling you what to do. <laughs> uh, and that's definitely an attribute. Uh, that you got to get and you got to build, you got to own to be successful um, in outdoor sports, uh, especially when they're out on the edge of, you know, what people are doing at whatever generation you're uh, in at the time. Um, but then you have to have the passion for it. Um, a passion verging on what would perhaps most commonly be called obsession. Uh, in the book, I, I have a place where I say that obsession gets a bad rap because of its association with, um, you know, actually mental problems where in truth, if you look at uh, the history of uh, human achievement, that most of the big breakthroughs were done by people who would probably be called obsessive. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think obsess obsession is can be a, a really good thing if um, you use it uh, carefully and skillfully and Certainly the people I've known who have been really successful in outdoor sports um, had, you know, what uh, many people might call a, a, an obsession about their commitment to it. Um, and commitment's another thing you have to learn how to do. Uh, when I first met Doug Tompkins, I uh, went to his office uh, at the company he owned at that time, Esprit, uh, the women's wear business that he started with his wife that he built into a billion dollar business. And um, <clears throat> like Patagonia, it had an open office, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, architecture inside uh, just a big, big open rooms. And also like Patagonia, you know, everybody had the same kind of desk. There was no hierarchy visible. Yeah. So Doug was kind of in the middle of everything with this open desk, you know, but against the wall right behind his, you know, modest desk was a little sign tacked up that said commit and then figure it out and I never that became a a, a, a you know a a 
a maxim that guided my life. I, it just stuck. And I realized that if I could do that, I could do just about anything because that might be the secret. That's the, that's the, like the key to unlock it right there. You got to be able to, to, to identify a goal, kind of organize a project to um, figure out all the steps you need to, to get to that goal. But then you have to make the first step. And even if you don't know what all the steps are going to be, and you never do, even if you don't have everything figured out and you never do, uh, even if there's a bunch of unknowns just over the horizon line, and there always is, if you don't make that first step and know that you're going to figure it out as you go along, you're never going to get there. <laughs> and that became a really big lesson. I remember fast forwarding, forwarding, I don't know, 30 years, maybe more, 40 years later, I was on a hike with Doug down in Patagonia. That it was This actually happened the day before Doug died. We were um, resting. We were hiking up a, a beautiful valley. He was thinking about maybe buying this place uh, to turn into another park because that's what he was doing. He was buying private lands and turning them into public protected areas. And he was looking through my binoculars and, and then he said, God, I don't know. He says, I've already got so much that I've committed to and we're kind of, Chris and I are overextended. <clears throat> uh, you know, we got some budget challenges. If I try to add this one, I just don't know if it makes any sense at all. And I said, hey, Doug, <clears throat> you're forgetting. He goes, forgetting what? I said, you're forgetting to commit and then figure it out. <clears throat> and he laughed and he goes, oh, yeah, that one. I said, I told him, I reminded him that I got it from the card he had above his desk. And he said, and I said, where did you get that? One? Anyway, is that your line? And he goes, no, no, no. I picked that up from Napoleon. <laughs> but <clears throat> as much as we joked about it, it was a maxim that we used in our lives to run our lives and not just our mountaineering lives, but our, the other parts of our lives, our, our business lives. <clears throat> and later in our lives, what uh, Yvonne and Doug especially were doing uh, for uh, conservation and environmental protection. And, and, and Doug's wife, Chris, the founding CEO of Patagonia, who after Doug died has continued to achieve these incredible conservation successes in Chile and Argentina, more than any single person in the history of conservation. Uh, she's still operating by the same maxim. We're all just committing out as we go along. So you know what? It, it, it's really held up in all those different arenas. Yeah. There's so many ways that you can apply that in life. Um, and I'm also curious about goal setting. Like you mentioned a lot that you, a difference between you and, um, well, Jennifer, your, your wife at the time, uh, was that you were consistently setting and trying to achieve and accomplish goals. How would you, how would you go about setting a goal? How would you go about achieving it? And what advice would you have for someone who's trying to accomplish the next step in their professional or in their personal life? Well, it is to, um, you know, it's to always keep your antenna out for um, a, 
a project or a, or opportunity. We've talked about opportunity earlier. Uh, you know, for any anything you might come across uh, that crosses your path that you identify with because it represents who, what your interests are, what your passions are, who you are, and that if it is a a project that can become a kind of a goal, if you want to pull it off, <clears throat> then uh, maybe you've got to turn that into an opportunity to make that commitment and then figure it out. So once you do that, then whether it's in business or sports or all these other arenas we're talking about, including conservation, you know, you, you've got to try to map it out uh, and certainly you know, that's what in business, it's the business plan, isn't it, for a startup. Uh, and in climbing and mountaineering, it's, it, it's, a, similar, it's a similar process. Uh, I think the most fulfilling example for me in my own uh, career uh, as, a, as an adventurer was uh, not a climb, but um, a expedition to the very northwestern corner of the Tibetan plateau called the Tang Tang. Uh, and where the goal wasn't a mountain or a summit, but it was to try to work with conservation biologists to protect a, an endangered goat antelope that lives out in those uh, uninhabited region called uh, the Shiru. And I had, by you know, I had come to, I had met and come to know uh, the eminent conservation biologist George Schaller, and I had learned and studied actually and read his books about his work in that part of the world, Northwest Tibet, and in particular about his work with the Shiru. And um, <clears throat> I knew that he had learned that the animals migrate uh, every year uh, in the early summer, the females uh, leave and they, and they went north into some mysterious place to have their babies and they'd come back a couple months later into the southern part of their range. And uh, in the southern part of the range, they were being poached for their underwool, which is really fine hair, was being woven into shawls that had become a fashion hit in Milan and New York and Paris. And, and the poaching of the animals was uh, scaling up really quickly, and their numbers were diminishing very, very fast. And George was concerned that if the poachers discovered where these unknown calving grounds were, and they got up there and started shooting the animals, uh, the mothers as they were calving, it would lead to the animal's extinction. So he had tried to go there several times. He had tried in vehicles coming up from the south. <clears throat> he knew where the calving grounds had to be approximately. He tried to come in from the north with a camel caravan, and it was so arduous that the animals started dying from exhaustion. And I went to him and I said, well, what if we followed the animals on foot? And he said, you can't do it because it's uninhabited. You got to walk 300 miles and, um, and you just have to carry too much stuff. And you go two or three or four days in some places between any water because it's a high altitude desert. So you have to carry water. And he said, each person's got to have 200 pounds. If you added camera gear, you can't do it. So then I thought, you know, that was kind of an idea, right? And it didn't have a solution. It didn't have the steps. It was missing something. And I was at the trade show for the outdoor industry a few months later, and I was sitting in the lobby of the Marriott in Salt Lake City. And there was a statue, a bronze statue of 
a Mormon family crossing the Great Plains with the father pulling a handcart with all their supplies in it across the flat American plains. And I just went, that's it. <laughs> so I went to National Geographic and, uh, and wrote a proposal, uh, and, and I got a green light from them. I, and I knew I needed some tough guys to make this, even with handcarts, rickshaws. It's going to be hard pulling that much stuff with across the plateau that had an average elevation of 16,000 feet. And uh, I signed, you know, I asked my friend Conrad Anker if he wanted to come and Galen Rao, and they signed up. And then we needed a fourth person, and Conrad says, I know this young kid named Jimmy Chen, and that's how Jimmy got his start because we appointed him to make the film. And so fast forward, we had to walk 300 miles. We had to carry 250, 275 pounds each for uh, a month. And we discovered the calving grounds. We made a movie. We wrote a magazine article. Uh, George promoted it. We had scientific articles we published. Uh, it had worldwide press. George took all that press back to the Chinese. They created, we shamed them into creating a protected <laughs> area around the calving grounds. And uh, we found the funds to uh, field patrols to turn back the poachers. And since then, the animals have started to increase. So we, we pulled it off. So I, I know it's a long story, but it's, no, I want the listeners to learn this, that it's a good example of how you get an idea, but at first you don't figure out a way to realistically pull it off. And then maybe the pieces start to put together, to, to come together, like it did for me with this idea for rickshaws. But, but then all the pieces weren't in place at all, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we had to commit and then figure it out as we went along. Um, you know, a, a few years, we, about three years after we got back, uh, the National Geographic wanted me to come to um, Washington to uh, give a presentation about our trip to the Dalai Lama. Uh, and uh, there was three other, two other people who were going to give presentations about their conservation work in Tibet. So we all had to keep it short. I condensed the whole slideshow about my trip with these guys saving the Shiro into three minutes and I gave my little slideshow and um, the president of National Geographic looked at the Dalai Lama and says, well, your holiness, what do you think? And he said, I like Rick's trip. <laughs> and, and, and we joked about it. Uh, he and I, you know, he, he asked if I had any more trips I was going to go on like that. And I go, are you kidding? That one almost <laughs> killed me. And that made everybody freak out because I was informal with him. Uh, and then he said, you know, uh, he said, um, I said, I, all right, I looked at him. I said, I tell you what, I'll go on and I'll go back if you come with me. And he said, well, I'll go with you if you pull me in your rickshaw. And I said, do you know how bad that would look for both of us? So, uh, but I, I'm telling, I'm telling you this because um, he liked it because we had that goal, didn't we? And, mm -hmm. and we figured out the pieces and we were also really realistic about the ultimate goal to try to save the species. And to do that, we had to work with the Chinese. We needed a strategy. So you see, we had a very effective business plan, but like any business plan for any startup, uh, didn't have all the pieces in there and you just got to work your ass off to fill in as stuff starts to go wrong because it always does. Now, you asked about goals and, and, and I just gave you a long-winded example about how in one case I, I went about uh, uh, achieving a goal uh, very successfully um, that became the most fulfilling trip of, of my life and with my colleagues as well. 
But then you also mentioned my my wife, uh, Jennifer, who's a big part of the book. Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, she wasn't goal oriented. Um, And she taught me how to proceed through my life, going through all my steps to reach a goal, keeping my eye on the steps themselves. And not so much to reach the goal, but to get as much as I could from the experience. Now, that is maybe the most important lesson I have to offer in the whole book. And I tried to summarize it when I tell readers that ultimately I learned that it's not about the summit, the goal. It's the footsteps it takes to get there, the process. Mm -hmm. If you don't know how to get as much as you can out of that process, in other words, if you don't know how to live in the moment and understand that that is what life is really about, that it's not lodged in the past someplace and it's not out there in front of you in the future just because there's a goal out on the horizon line and you're just like I am myopically focused on getting to that. If you don't understand how to get the most you can out of the process of being there every moment, every step, you're going to miss the the real deepest fulfilling meaning that any of us have in our lives. And that's what my wife taught me. Mm. That seems like such a beautiful lesson to learn. Uh, And I think it's one of the most important qualities for someone to have is just to be in the moment day to day, because you're not always on uh, a life changing trip. You're not always on something. And and I did a, a little bit of traveling when I was younger. I lived in Thailand for a few years and I did a lot of scuba diving and rock climbing there. Um, but I was always kind of searching for the next thing. Um, and what my wife is teaching me is a very similar lesson is that you're not always, um, you can't always live like that. And it's much more fulfilling and gratifying to be in the moment. Um, I was curious if your desire, and I'm only asking cause I've, I've had a similar, um, kind of way of thinking about things, but being goal oriented, does your desire for the next trip, do you find that that gets in the way of some uh, personal satisfaction of just the day-to-day life like we were just talking about? Yes. Uh, yes, that was part of um, my own arc of inner development, uh, learning this lesson from my wife mm-hmm. was, uh, you know, it, when it took a, a long time uh, of her coaching, uh, reminding me, me thinking about it, me reflecting on it, mm-hmm. uh, to develop that ability to not um allow myself to be distracted by the goal by the summit to the extent it would occlude my ability to really enjoy and get as much fulfillment as i could out of the process is what we i just said before mm-hmm. so yeah i made that mistake so many times uh, and i had to it, it's like a practice it's like you know, what Buddhists call a practice where you've got to meditate on something almost and think about it. And, and you've got to build the tool, the internal tools to catch yourself slipping out of the moment and get yourself back into the moment, even though, even though you got that goal out in front of you, it is really hard. I'll (laughs) tell you. (laughs) And I still, you know, I'm 72 years old now and I'm not going to tell you and, and the listeners, uh, 
that I got it all figured out and that I've that that I'm I'm uh, that I've got it perfectly figured out at this point because I still have to do that all the time. Um, but then more and more as I get older, I am finding more and more moments where I'm just fully there. I'm connected. I'm listening. I'm seeing. I'm tasting uh, everything around me. Uh, and I'm unconscious that I'm actually doing that. And I'm, I'm deeply in it. So I'm getting there. Yeah. That's the goal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. It's one of those things that some people seem to have it naturally, but at least for me, um, and it sounds like for you, it, it takes a lot of that consistent reinforcement. My, uh, my main tool for my own practice of living in the moment uh, for many years now has been uh, bird watching. Oh, nice. Um, and I talk about that in the book too, where I've discovered that learning how to, and not just identify birds, but to understand their behaviors, to try to put yourself into their lives, to also gain knowledge about uh, their origins uh, and their evolution uh, that has led to a, a deep, deep appreciation uh, of um of the splendor of the biodiversity we have around us. But, but to get back to this moment, this uh, topic of living in the moment, birding has really helped me because uh, now I can um, really be so much more aware of everything going on me. For example, right now it's um, 5 p.m. in California where I live in a little town of Ojai. And I'm out in the kind of an oak woodland, uh, fortunate to live in a little small, tiny house. And as we're talking right now, Brian, way in the background, I can hear a little chirp. I can hear it And too. it's a bird called a canyon wren. Uh, and it's calling to its buddy, which is probably some other distance away where I can't hear it. But I'm very conscious of that bird there. I know exactly what it's doing. I know why it's calling. I know what it looks like. Uh, I can even visualize what its behavior is. So I'm really connected to where I'm at right now as I talk to you. Mm. Um, and I have got my brain now in a, in a way where it's kind of tuned into what's going on around me, not just the bird noises uh, or the bird sights, but everything else that's going around, especially what I'm in nature. I'm just way more tuned in than I was before I became a bird watcher. <laughs> so... Um, Jane, Jane Hirschfeld has, has a poem uh, called Seven Words, uh, which is, a, I think, a, a tanka, not a haiku, a Japanese poetry form. Uh, and she said in seven words uh, that everything changes. Everything is connected. Pay attention. Mm. And in seven words, that sums what we're talking about right now. Hmm. I love that. And I bet what really helped with that being in the moment was the summit to sea trip. Um, and it actually brings me to a passage I really liked when you were like, uh, you mentioned it was attention. However, it felt like something I was meant to own, like something I had lost, but now recovered. And consequently, it was something that I valued. To me, that rang pretty clear uh, and pretty true of just you've got to be in the moment i mean there's tension associated with that trip but you were in the midst of 
the big five of Africa, right? And, and you were on foot. And there was that entire trip where you could have been made a meal of by many different um, animals. And it was just uh, at that point, you've got to be in the moment. You've got to be aware of what's happening. I'm wondering if, if kind of like what we're talking about, if it was an evolution over time that's happened, you know, that started from the deterioration of goals to more of a, um, more of a, an organic appreciation that also came from some of your trips or that, or that might've helped influence some of your trips. Well, that trip was this, again, opportunity to use that word to spend several weeks on foot at eye level, as you just said, uh, with uh, animals that place you a few rungs down the food chain. And in a sense, it was an opportunity to go back in time and be the kind of person, well, be the kind of animal <laughs> that we all are <laughs> back in the time when that was what we did every day. Mm-hmm. We walked in the presence of animals that placed us a few rungs down the food chain because we were an animal amongst animals and we had to know how to deeply pay attention if we were going to live and survive. Um, so it is in our origins to do that. And my the quote that you just had from that book is about recognizing in myself that ability that all of us have and all of us own because it's in our DNA. That's where we've come from. And I think there's much to be learned uh, for everyone listening to this, uh, to putting yourself in a position where you have to go back to your roots, into your deeply into your DNA, to have those experiences where you do see that inner part of yourself and you do recognize it in you because none of us, few of us in our urban, modern, civilized lives ever have the chance to 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 see that part of ourselves and, and, and recognize it. It's so valuable, I think, to be able to do that and, and connect back to that. And and that's another sub-theme in the book from a few of my other trips, especially one in the Amazon with some Yanomami people who had only recently been contacted in the previous decade who were, again, living close to pure hunting and gathering lives and, and being with them in the jungle for a while allowed me through them, again, to have a view into my own origins. Uh, and that's a chapter that I consequently called Jungle Mirror because that's what it was. It was a, they were a mirror uh, for me to look into myself and see who I used to be. Mm. I love it. And, uh, and so in the later stages, um, I guess in the past, what, 15, 20 years, you started working at Patagonia. I think you're the vice president of either public engagement or environmental affairs. Yeah, both. Um, I was one okay. for a while and then the other for a while. Okay. Yeah, that's what I thought, but I just wanted to make sure. Um, but with that, you got to work with a lot of organizations. I'm curious, what organizations are listening to their better angels? That's a whole chapter in your book, but what organizations are actually listening to their better angels and um, doing what they can for the um, 
environmental issues, but also their social impact that they have on the planet and which ones have a little bit of work to do? Well, there's um, a lot of or, uh, a lot of smaller organizations that are very effective in protecting uh, wildlife and wilderness in their, in their backyards. <clears throat> there's a, a, a myriad of them, and I encourage everybody to find out uh, who those groups are. Um, you can go to Patagonia's website. Uh, they're part of their website called the Action Works, where <clears throat> they list many of the organizations that the company supports um, that are committed to uh, wilderness uh, and wildlife conservation. I work with another organization now uh, called One Earth, oneearth.org. Uh, and uh, I'll tell you a bit more about them in a minute, but they have a section of their website as well where they have uh, hundreds of uh, listing of hundreds of organizations that are working to, again, uh, on a very local level, save wildlife uh, and wild lands. <clears throat> so uh, there's, there's hundreds of great groups uh, out there. I have decided in my own, with whatever time I have left uh, at my age now, to devote uh, more and more time to several of these groups, uh, including this one called One Earth, uh, which is an organization that has built a framework of, for climate change solutions uh, that is based on uh, uh, a, a, a scientific analysis uh, that we funded, the groups funded, that um, shows scientifically <clears throat> how much carbon uh, emissions will be reduced by a conversion to renewable energy. It shows on a very granular level uh, how much uh, of nature, of wild areas, uh, need to be protected and where in order for those wild areas to maximize their potential to sequester carbon naturally in plants and in soil, because if we don't do that, we can't solve climate change. And then it's shown also how much carbon can be sequestered and how much emissions can be reduced through a transition from industrial food production to regenerative farming. Um, and it, it, it has shown that and validated by the best science that's been done to date, that if we scale our human activities in those three places, conversion to renewables, protection of nature, conversion of food production, we can keep the planet to 1.5 degrees. Uh, and that protecting nature part of it is essential. If we don't do that, we're never going to solve climate change. But if we don't do these other things, we're not going to solve it either. <laughs> so there's uh, there's real hope there because it's uh, it's a it's a validated framework, a, a path, a blueprint for how we can save ourselves. I'm glad you mentioned One Earth because I had a question just about that. Was I was very curious. Um, so this one's uh, from a friend. Um, but I did mention some, to some friends and colleagues that I was going to be talking with you today. Um, and one wanted to know if you had any funny Fred Beckley stories. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, I never knew Fred that well, uh, but I did know him a bit. And we hung out some. But uh, he was my climbing partner, Yvonne Chouinard's climbing mentor. Um, he was probably early in Yvonne's life the main influence uh, on Yvonne and Totem. 
you know, uh, as a as a really young guy when Yvonne first got obsessed with climbing, um, you know how to how to, how you do it. And Yvonne told me that one time I think Yvonne was only nineteen or twenty years old, and I think they were climbing maybe Edith Cavell doing a new route or first ascent in the Canadian Rockies, and uh, they got to a bivouac ledge, and they're going to have to spend the night. So Yvonne got out his you know, down parka that he'd paid every penny he could scrape up to get. And he had a a little, we used to call him elephant's foot. I think that's what he had, you know, a half of a sleeping bag for his legs. And, and then he looks over at Becky and Becky pulls out of his pack a Salvation Army type tweed coat that was all full of holes and he'd gotten some thrift shop. And he puts this tweed coat on and then he, pulls all this newspaper out of his pack and then he starts wadding the newspaper up and stuffing it in the tweed coat for insulation so he gets the he gets you know his his thrift store tweed coat all stuffed with newspaper and and they bivouac and then uh in the morning uh fred takes all the paper out of his coat and he wads it up tightly and he starts a little fire and he heats his coffee and then he burns his coat <laughs> and they continue the climb. <laughs> That's actually kind so, of genius. I thought so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So now that you are retired, um, as of 2020, it sounds like what adventures are left both for you and what adventures are still out there for modern explorers? Well, I retired, uh, two years ago, <laughs> right as the pandemic was starting. Uh, it was a good time for me to move on and a good time for Patagonia too, because they were, you know, they, they were facing an unknown future. Um, and, you know, I was in my 70s. So we came to a mutual agreement. This is an ideal time for, for me to step aside. Uh, but then I started using my time to volunteer for more conservation organizations. And I started writing my book at Sometimes I tell people that I'm working harder now than when I used to work. So, uh, so much for retirement. But as I said, it coincided with COVID. And it turned out to be just a terrific opportunity for me to uh, pull back from travel, uh, to pull back from <clears throat> putting a lot of carbon into the atmosphere from my own footprint. Hmm. And to to pull back and and necessarily uh, spend time in my own backyard, uh, if I use the word backyard for the mountains behind Ojai, the national forest that I live adjacent to, and I've spent uh, a lot of time going deeper and deeper into my backyard, and I just get I learn more and more every time I go out. Uh, and it's taught me this big lesson about the, the value and the joy that comes from learning and spending a lot of time right where you're at and, and really learning a lot about it. And maybe even though this is the opposite of the theme of your podcast, that um, you don't need to always travel the world to learn deeply about the world. I love that. No, I, it's kind of like what we talked about, uh, you know, a couple minutes ago was that I always felt like travel was necessary. I always felt like I needed to, to, to do the next thing or have the next goal. Uh, 
but what the real goal should be is to be um, in the moment and where you are and, and really on your, you know, working for your backyard um, to make that a better place. I think that's the most important thing. And I think we all kind of, to an extent, learned that during COVID. Um, okay. Well, last question. I have to ask this of everyone. Um, and I love how, first of all, I love so much about your book. It, it's, it's written so eloquently. Uh, there's so many different adventures in it, even more that you didn't even write. I mean, you mentioned that you had to cut out. Um, but what I really like is that you're incredibly positive. It seems like you're very positive about the, the future of Earth. Um, so I just want to ask you directly, are you hopeful for the planet? Are you hopeful that a lot of these places that you have climbed and, and experienced and might not even be the same now as they were 50 years ago, 40, 30 years ago when you first experienced them, but are you hopeful that we will be able to get these environmental, uh, both extinction and, uh, climate crises under control? I... I'm cautiously optimistic uh, that we're going to avoid uh, the cliff that uh, from climate that that we aren't going to essentially create our own extinction uh, through um, our overuse of the planet's limited resources. I recognize that we humans uh, are terrible at predicting the future. Um, that uh, we looking back through our own history, always have what are now commonly referred to as black swan events like COVID. <laughs> uh, and it's possible that, um, uh, that we are going to figure this out. And uh, that's why I work with this group, One Earth. That's why I love the work I do with conservation groups, uh, supporting, helping do a small part to support uh, Chris Tompkins and her continued work to create new protected areas in, South, in, in Chile and Argentina. I, I had dinner with Chris last night and we were mm. talking about this very thing. And she said, well, I think I'm pessimistic. I think it most likely that we are going to go over the cliff. And, and I said, well, you're probably right. Uh, <laughs> maybe I should call myself a pessimist because that's the most likely scenario given the pattern that we're looking at right now. And, and then she said, yeah, but really doesn't uh, change the commitment to, to do something about it, does it? Exactly. And I said, not an iota. And I remember George Schaller, my one of my mentors who we've talked about previously, he told me one time, he said, Rick, the, the secret is to get up in the morning and stretch your arms and not say that today you're going to save the world, but rather to stretch your arms and say, today I'm going to work on saving one discrete, very precisely defined little part of it. <laughs> so that's how he goes about his life. Uh, that's how Chris does it as well. Uh, those are two of my companions and mentors and colleagues who I've learned so much from. I might just leave the listeners... Uh, with that idea that um, despair as a response is not only useless, but as my friend David Quammen said, the writer, it's also no fun. So let's enjoy ourselves. Let's be joyful. 
let's find joy in our lives by learning how to pay attention in our lives to every moment that we breathe, every moment that we're alive, every moment that we can enjoy the sun on our faces. And let's use whatever is in our chest, whatever tool, tools we have in our box to do what we can, every single one of us, to keep the wondrous wildness of our one and only home planet intact for us and our future generations. And we can do it. We can do it. Mr. Bridgeway, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. I really appreciate yeah. it. Um, I've taken more of it than I deserve, but thank you so much for speaking with me about matters of consequence. Um, it means an incredible amount. Well, it's been my pleasure, Brian. All the best to you. You too. Thank you. Thanks for joining. If you liked that episode, feel free to rate, view, and subscribe. That actually really helps. If you haven't seen it yet, take a look at the accompanying blog. Don't forget your boots.com, where you can read more and see photos for all the interviews. Until next time, take care.